Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A Ronin podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 150, Westerns 101, Westerns of the Rising Sun. Yeah, that's right. We're going back. Our uh, our Western series continues. Uh, oh, yeah. And as we talked about last time, uh, Westerns were influenced by uh, films from overseas, and in turn, they influenced films overseas. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, taking it's a all a cycle. <laughs> it's all a cycle. And uh, these, are, these are bringing us back to um, some films we've covered in the past. We have a history of connecting westerns and samurai films from season one uh so go check out some of those we're going to be doing basically some follow-up discussion with some of our films today uh but yeah just as a quick overview or uh recap uh if you have been with us for the many years that we've been doing this um we've talked about chambara films before um Back in the world tour, we did a Japan episode, and then we also did our series uh, Samurai and Sombreros. But again, just to recap, it's a subgenre of the Jidai Geki films, which Jidai Geki is Japan's version of a period film. Um, and Chambara films are a subset of that that focus a lot on sword fighting. Uh, they're kind of the action, the swashbuckling films of the Jidai Geki uh, category of period films. And... The sword fighting is its own kind of martial arts sport, um, kind of like fencing. And this even comes up in some of our films that we'll be talking about where they're talking a lot about the styles and the techniques of the sword fighting. And I know I don't know all the terms, but I know that in these types of Chambara films, there are certain there are names for the different kinds of sword moves that you can do. There's diagonal slashes, there's vertical slashes, there's thrusts or stabs, um, and those all have specific names. So it, it really does kind of take on the feel of a sport film of sorts. Um, and then there's also kind of like what we've been talking about in Westerns in general, there's different ways that you can kind of plot that out. There's one versus one duels and there's one versus a thousand or just a general very large number of foes uh, and we're going to see a good amount of both of those so you've got duels and you've got the the hero versus the horde essentially and a lot of times these are set in the uh, tokugawa era which is a period of japan's history um, categorized by military rule and isolation and is often kind of romanticized in ways that uh, we see romantic romanticization in the West, whether it be Westerns or uh, something like chivalric or heraldic uh, stories. You have wandering warriors in the uh, Japanese samurai films. Those are ronins. Uh, those are samurais without a master. Um, you see sneaky outlaws and bandits all the time. Uh, damsels in distress. Uh, you have personal codes of honor. You have societal um, needs and political desires kind of clashing with those codes of honor um, and seeing who's going to compromise on what first. You have epic, epic fights. Um, and you have this this idea that we talked about before of, quote unquote, printing the legend. You have characters, personalities that um, whether or not they're based on real characters, because we're going to see some characters today that are based on or loosely based on real um, historical people uh, and some that just kind of symbolize uh, different modes of thinking and acting. And uh, those get turned into these big 
characters and legends and myths and uh, those, you know, all kind of take on the same kinds of mythology that we've been talking about in Westerns, uh, just in a different world setting. Yeah, it is. Um, it, there's definitely a lot to uh, that, that you can see where uh, uh, Japanese directors who grew up as fans of Westerns uh, were influenced by those films and kind of took them into this different genre and gave it so yeah. many aspects of the former. Um, and I think we're going to see influence of um, American films and even just Western literature in general from other genres, like uh, yes. even some noir uh, and like uh, almost espionage detective type stories going oh, into this Oh, for too. sure. Yes. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, we have quite the set of films to talk about today. Um, and it's getting in, it's getting more and more interesting. There's so many good samurai films, but um, we've covered so many already that uh, mm -hmm. sometimes we're just kind of working our way through a series. And you'll see that in our lineup today. Um, but we're starting off with Samurai, the first part of the Samurai trilogy. Mushashi Miyamoto from 1954, which is directed by Hiroshi Inagaki. Uh, screenplay by Inagaki and Tokuhei Wakao. Uh, based on the book Musashi by Eji uh, Yoshikawa, which is based on the actual kinsei or sword saint himself, Musashi Miyamoto, who famously fought like 70 samat duels and went completely undefeated during mm -hmm. all of them. Uh, Granted, this is a very loose adaptation. We'll get into all that. This is very loose, yeah. <laughs> his, his own biography, Musashi's own biography, does not give all these harrowing personal narratives that you see in the, the movie Although there's a lot of humanization that goes on there. His own biography is mostly about a sword fighting technique. So there's a lot of embellishment that goes on. Um, I will also say that we've accidentally made a Mifune episode today. I know. Um, I noticed that. <laughs> it's going to be epic. And, um, and uh, Toshiro Mifune and uh, Tetsuyo, Tetsuya Nakadai are two of the like biggest, most important oh, yeah. samurai actors. And Mifune's in all three of these films, Nakadai's in two of them. Um, and they were both very famously like huge, like on-screen muses for Akira Kurosawa, um, who used them in almost all of his movies. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, they're, they're great. And you get to see different aspects of them. It even plays off of some of the archetypes that we talked about with um, different Western her heroes that we spoke about in the previous few episodes in the Western series. But all that is to say, this film stars Toshiro Mifune, Renataro uh, Mikuni, and uh, Kureyaman uh, Onoe, and cinematography by uh, Jun uh, Yasumoto. And then we're going to talk about Sanjuro, because we've already talked about Yojimbo. Uh, mm -hmm. But Sanjuro is the follow-up to that film from 1962, directed by Akira Kurosawa, screenplay by Kurosawa himself, Ryuzo Kikushima, and Hideo Oguni. Uh, based on the book or story uh, Hibi Heian uh, by Shugeru Yamamoto, uh, starring Toshiro Mifune, again, Tetsuyu, Tetsuya mm -hmm. Nakadai, playing a slightly less psychotic version of a samurai than he <laughs> usually plays, Keiju Kobayashi and Yuzo uh, Kayama. Uh, cinematography by Fukuzo Koizumi and Takao Saito. And then finally, we're going to talk about another Chambara film that was started as a line picture and kind of became a critical darling over uh, the years, which is The Sword of Doom from 1966, directed by Kihachi Okamoto, screenplay by Shinobu uh, Hashimoto, and based on the tale 
uh, or the the like newspaper serial. Um, mm-hmm. From what I've read, this this story kind of originated in a way kind of similar to how like Alexander Dumas used to publish his books. Yeah, which was they were like serials in the paper, mm-hmm. um, and eventually it kind of became a thing. And this story's been adapted into film multiple times over but this is maybe the most widely known internationally known version of it um but it's based on uh the novel dai bosatsu toge which translates to great bodhisattva pass which is the name of the film in japanese it's only uh the sword of doom and localization by kaizen nakazato uh starring tetsuya nakadai playing maybe his most psychotic version of himself um, Toshiro Mifune again, Yuzo Kayama again, and Michio Aratama. Cinematography by Hiroshi Mirai. I'll also note before we jump into the films themselves that all three of these films are done by the same production studio, Toho. And in fact, mm-hmm. unless I'm totally mistaken, my impression of Japanese film during the majority of the 20th century and most of the 21st is that it is Toho. Like, I don't think there really is any other super <laughs> or at least big players. Most of the notable ones. Yeah. 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 There's so many. I think even the all the Godzilla films were Toho, too, weren't they? Yeah. It's like it's all Toho. It's just uh, everything is Toho. huge chunk of anime is Toho animation. Um, I know probably, there are a few others, but I cannot tell you what films come from them. Yeah. Like like America's had like the big six or the big five in its past when it comes to movie studios. But Japan pretty much they're, they have the big one. Which is Toho. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, they're pretty. So they're shout very out prolific. to Toho this week, uh, this month. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jason, why don't you kick us off and uh, give us the overview of Samurai One Musashi Miyamoto from 1954. Samurai One Musashi Miyamoto from 1954. Two young friends go off to war in the hopes of becoming samurai. One, Matahachi, leaves behind his betrothed, Otsu, and finds out that he is a hopeless coward after the battle of Sekigahara. The latter, Takizo, is also disappointed by the outcome of the battle, but doesn't succumb to the same despair. After Matahachi deserts him, it's up to Takizo to return to their home village and inform Otsu that her betrothed won't be returning. But now alone and pursued by the newly victorious shogunate soldiers, Takizo becomes a wild outlaw, hungry and starving, yet still deadly with a blade. It's not until he's captured by the Buddhist priest Takuan that he's set upon the path to becoming a samurai and eventually the legendary sword saint Miyamoto Musashi. Or Musashi Begins, as I like to think of it. Uh, Musashi (laughs) Episode 4, A New Samurai? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, that is one thing. Watching these just before we like actually start talking about the samurai stuff, but watching these, we talk we've already talked about the connection between Star Wars and samurai films, but just watching the sword fighting in these and watching everyone's little takes on their sword fighting stance and their, you know, the way that they kind of square off before they actually start fighting, it's just like that's there's so much Star Wars that comes from just the entire feel of samurai films more than oh for sure over just like the specific elements that were picked from actual samurai films it's just there's such the feel of it um and it's so cool to watch all the the sword fighting and just just masterful masterful sword fights uh that as we've talked about many times on the podcast before you don't totally get with uh gunfights um no so i would we're gonna love to see gush on it this week i would love to see a um 
a version of a Western where there's like different gunfighting schools, like how there's different <laughs> schools of yeah. swordplay. And um, in in uh, in in these Chambara films, but yeah, I think the I think the if best there's anyone analog, to do that, it would be John Woo. It would be so cool. Um, but yeah, it would essentially. I think I just the the idea of a duel like is so prevalent in both genres that that's kind of like the easiest like connection yeah. point, right? Like the the I think the thing that's really different is probably the um, the one versus many fights where it's like one dude fighting 500 dudes mm-hmm. um or something like that but the, the 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 two the two warriors like squinting at each other from across a dusty path and yeah. whoever draws their weapon faster is going to win is like as central to a lot of these uh yeah. to a lot of these these stories but the connections go deeper than that but of course that is so much fun and it's definitely on uh on display here in this this film which is honestly like even aside from like everything else is a beautiful like shot huge technicolor epic um, oh yeah that is just a lot of fun and big and sprawling and um kind of episodic in nature too where there's just so much time that's covered and so many characters mm-hmm. that um really do recommend it and you know obviously the other two films as well yeah. So yeah, and to that end, uh, the reason that I joke that that I would call it Musashi Begins is because this really feels like um, a uh, exposition piece for the other two films. This is set. This is getting Mus- giving Musashi a background, a history, so origin that, story. Yeah. Yeah, it's an origin story because really, um, and I didn't realize this until I went back to it because I thought that this was a case of. Having watched all three of them, you know, I couldn't remember which one was the big fight at the end of this movie. And then I went back and looked and there is no big fight at the end of this movie. This movie's climax is Musashi being, um, for lack of a better term, kidnapped by the monk and uh, educated into art and culture and sword fighting and all this stuff and kind of taming his wild, uh, just violent nature into um into the Musashi of legend, because that's something that we'll talk about too in a second is that Musashi Miyamoto is, is one of the biggest Japanese characters of legend ever. Um, and so this film really just kind of sets that up and it ends with him, you know, learning, being, becoming a more tame, more, uh, he's kind of the epitome of the stoic, the thoughtful, the elegant swordsman, um, and this film just sets that up. And then at the end, he basically chooses the sword over uh, over his heart or his love or whatever. Um, and there, it, it's not a big explosive ending like the other two have. Uh, so it's really interesting because bringing it to your your discussion of the duels, what sets the what makes the other two kind of feel so much like they fit in that Western is that it is him kind of strolling in to a town and then you know, and ending up picking fights or getting a fight picked on him or whatever, uh, which is actually kind of how it would work for Ronins in the in the era where if, you know, your your clan or your master is defeated or whatever, suddenly you're out on your own. Um, you're a freelance. You can, you know, but you're trying to get hired and get, you know, find a way to uh, get it's food. It's all about that get, hustle. <laughs> when you're get, a Ronin, uh, you got to wake up and get that bread. 
Yeah, but the interesting thing is that usually you're trying to go pick fights, find the the best swordsman that you can beat and beat them and make a name for yourself so that another lord will come along and say, hey, you're really great. Come work for me, be in my house and all that kind of stuff. But Musashi Miyamoto and in his biography, his whole thing was that he never really wanted to settle. He wanted to always be improving himself and learning and and besting uh, his own. He's all about that grind, Jonathan. (laughs) Miyamoto is all about that hustle culture. He's about the strive for perfection more than the like, I would say the way that he differs from like a Sanjuro character, especially in Yojimbo is in Yojimbo. Sanjuro is just always trying to get a paycheck from whoever. (laughs) And uh, we see that in some other samurai films that play on the idea of the the higher ultimately, gun or the higher blade. Well, it, not necessarily that, but they play on this idea that the samurai is the ultimate embodiment of honor and um, uh, this like ethical bastion, essentially. Um, and I think Musashi is that ideal. He is the pinnacle of the honor that a samurai is supposed to represent. He's the pinnacle of the the mix of swordsmanship and art appreciation. He was a painter. He was a poet. He was a swordsman. You know, he was all of the things combined into one, which is why he becomes so legendary. And then basically the other films that we see are variations on that theme. Like I think this month we have a really great arc in our films because we're going to see this ideal kind of get deconstructed further and further through our next two films. And you see it in so many other samurai films, like a few others that we're going to throw in here. For sure. Um, and one of the themes that I think is at play in a big part in this film um, and kind of plays off of what you're talking about and also connects very well to a lot of uh, Westerns we see is kind of that uh, tension between like uh, a certain wild individualistic power and um, on the other hand like being torn towards society and uh, a culture and a kind of like a more sophisticated influence it's something we saw at play I think in large part in the man who shot Liberty Valance where we Mm -hmm. saw kind of like this old wilder west dying out and a more uh, sophisticated modernized um, nobler west kind of be ushered in and it's kind of Progress. the same, yeah, it's kind of the same uh, arc that you see uh, Musashi or Takeso in this film um, kind of uh, kind of follow as he goes in pursuit of power and just becomes like, he, he does become very powerful, but he becomes incredibly wild and unkempt as he tries to do it all on his own, totally yeah. depart, unconnected from anything. The sole pursuit of power is not enough. He's, he's, he goes mad. He nearly dies in the forest and he's easily captured by, um, by a Buddhist monk who to capture him just offers him some food <laughs> that, and that's it. And he's captured. Um, so trying it's to do so it all fun, almost, own. almost in like a fable kind of way. It was, it's, it's very fabulistic, which again, plays back to like that idea of like chivalric tales, right? Yeah. Of like, um, kind of like local legends and stuff like that. Um, but he finds out, Takezo finds out that, you know, when, if he connects that power to something and, ha, you know, plays that role in society, he actually becomes a much better version of himself um, and finds that he can help people 
much more and is not a wild loose cannon that leaves a path of destruction in his wake. Well, yeah, and it's interesting too because he's almost almost more than searching for a place in society. He's almost so um, internal that, like I said, his whole goal becomes to just better himself. And it's, you know, it's not about necessarily serving a Lord. It's just about how can I prove to myself that I'm better than I was? And, you know, the people that he chooses to pick on to say, hey, can I have a fight with you to see, to prove to myself how good I am? They're like, no, you're not worthy of us. And then that's what starts a bunch of trouble in the second and third films. So the interesting thing about this film as that kind of exposition piece is that you can already see some of those um, hints of honor and stuff that are already kind of innately there in his character, even though he is super raw and unformed at the very beginning. But he has the foil character of his best friend who runs off oh, to war with his him. best friend who just sucks. Yeah, he's the worst. Madahashi is the worst foil because essentially his entire character is self-preservation, right? He's yeah. like, I'm going to, you know, make whatever deal that I need to or I'm going to uh, screw over whoever I need to just to not get killed or whatever. Um, and Musashi from the beginning is, uh, or Takezo is always just going to fight his way out on his own. Uh, but the interesting thing about, um, uh, Madahachi is that he gets out self-preservation. Like he gets trapped up with, uh, the two women whose entire existence is just, uh, they're, I mean, they're hustlers. They're battlefield scavengers, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're totally scavengers, hustlers, um, and they end up totally ruining his life in a kind of uh, karmic sort of way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he abandons his friend. He tries to force himself on one of the women and kind of gets uh, seduced slash tricked by the other. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's he makes a real mess of his life. He abandons his like childhood sweetheart slash betrothed. Uh, yeah, that's a whole thing with, uh, yeah, with those, those two. Yeah. Those, those love interests flipping. Um, cause then you have Akami who, um, or which one, I can't remember which one is which, but you have the one whose mom is the hustler. And then she's just obsessed with Musashi, even though she's never seen him for years and years. And then, uh, the other one who was the oh, best too. friends girl yeah. that then he does fall in love with. It's, it's a wild ride. Yeah, it's, it's a really wild ride. Although I do like that this kind of like other theme that's kind of like been building where the way we talk about him at the beginning of the film is like, he's, he's got all these qualities, but he's just like untempered, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of like the four, it, the story is kind of like the forging of a blade. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's this powerful lump of iron that has all this potential but is completely unrefined and mm -hmm. his, his quest over the uh, course of the film, especially once he gets some guidance um, and some connection from uh, the Buddhist priest and uh, Otsu is to like start to refine himself into being a sharpened, a sharpened blade, um, you know, making himself, you know, useful and less dangerous or more less. Da it's weird because he's making himself less dangerous in the sense that he's more controlled, but he's making himself more dangerous <laughs> by focusing right. all of the, the, uh, the danger of the blade into one edge. 
it, yeah, which is it's literally is, is really focused to a point. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. And then again, I don't know if we'll have an opportunity, but just to kind of add in some of the, the trilogy aspects. I mean, at the end you have his ultimate dual partner, um, in Sasaki and you can see like, I mean, the whole series is about Masashi. It's not gonna be too much of a spoiler to say that he wins that battle, but he also has kind of a sense of defeat at the end of that battle. Um, and there's also, this is also part of his story and his biography and stuff. And that, uh, or just the historical legend around him is that he basically realized that he had defeated the best match that he would ever have. And he was, you know, you know, lost a little bit of himself in doing that. Uh, but it, just is a really interesting character study. Uh, and again, I think goes into this whole, this whole element of this is the ideal samurai. That's what this film, this, well, yeah, the film adds a lot of the extra characters like the friend and the love interests and stuff like that. Um, but it's all in service of just building this legend of this is what a samurai should be. These are the things that a samurai should care about. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the ideal. It's like a. It's very much the heroic archetype of a samurai, um, which makes sense in a lot of ways. Why it pairs so well with like chivalric tales from the West, right? Because the mm-hmm. sam- samurai are the nobility, the warrior nobility class of medieval Japan, which makes sense. Um, so all of those ideals of like being both cultured and our ardent warriors, having this pure moral code. Um, are all wrapped up in there and even seeing seeing like notes of like uh, almost like Arthurian legends too of like a peasant being raised to the knighthood um, mm-hmm. or you know even more classic even the Buddhist of- monk has has a kind of uh, you know Merlin-esque quality to him because you get the idea that he's an excellent swordsman too because in some of the other films um, Sasaki has this sword and I think somehow it's implied that the sword belonged to the monk, but it's like the most epic sword, like the monk owned Excalibur uh, somehow. But that you never see sense. him fight. He's, He's just kind of this thing. He knows he knows the highest lord in the land at uh, um, Tokyo or Edo or I don't remember where they were. Um, but he he's somehow always there. He's got this kind of mythic wizard quality to him. And again, like you said, he he's able to capture the super powerful warrior that no one else is able to capture, like almost by magic. He's got that mythical quality to him. Yeah. The, the priest very much has that wizardly quality. It also reminded me of certain other like warrior religious figures that we've seen in other, um, chivalric or Western tales, like either Friar Tuck. Uh, oh yeah. Or, uh, um, Tuck, or the, one of the main like warriors in the searchers, um, outside of like the main two guys is a priest is a reverend. Oh yeah. The reverend guy. Yeah. Who, Mm -hmm. who's kind of like the most experienced guy there. Who's kind of like trying to guide everybody else to not do the stupid, most stupid thing possible (laughs) at every given moment. Um, you know, you have, you have the turncoat friend who abandons you on your journey. You have, um, the, uh, seductive temptress who tries to Mm -hmm. force you to stray from the path, um, all sorts of pitfalls and stuff. And, yeah, it's it's a good setup for a chivalric tale. And oh my uh, gosh, that's that's right. The two the two women um, are literally the whore and the Madonna uh, in the other two films. Oh, do they do they come back? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's I, been so long every, since I've seen this whole trilogy. <laughs> yeah. So almost every film he ends up ditching Akami uh, for his pursuit of the sword and for his own nobility. Um, but he's always like in love with her and torn with himself. Do you mean and Otsu? That's what I'm trying to figure out. No, no, no. I think Otsu is the is the mom. Otsu is the is the is the one is the one from their village who he leaves on Are the sure bridge that's not at Akami? the end of the first movie. I am sure. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which one is the best the, friend's girl? Yeah. Akami's the young girl who he met on his travels who um was like she's drive your horse faster. The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's the daughter of the um of the woman. Okay. Anyway, the daughter is she ends up getting sold off by her mom. So she becomes the the prostitute and then uh, the other girl is kind of the the this the the pure one, right? So then you have again that uh, Madonna whore complex kind of thing going on. So you have all these archetypes happening because this story is so high level at every aspect. Yeah, yeah, and of course we should say a lot of that stuff is added in. Um, a lot of the personal, oh yeah, almost all of that, yeah. A lot of the personal details of Musashi Miyamoto's life are um, unrecorded. He did write, uh, he did write some texts, but they're almost entirely about. While they do have biographical elements, they're almost entirely about uh, his sword fighting and uh, the way of the blade that he he taught and learned, and kind of like the school he founded and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so there they exist, but not in this kind of like salacious personal detail that you see um, on display yeah. in the movie. So there's, all of that is very much added in. There's a series of interviews with a uh, um, a, a Japanese historian or a historian of Japan. He, the guy's not Japanese, uh, but done by Criterion. That's part of the bonus features. If you watch this on the Criterion disc or on the Criterion channel, Um but it's so funny because he he's trying to talk about the movie, but he basically has to go through every single thing. He's like, yeah, that person didn't exist. And that person, basically none of these people existed. He's like, I want to <laughs> talk about Musashi, but all this stuff about the movie, you got to forget about it. Yeah, all of that's added on. It's very apocryphal. Um, and it reminds me, I and I think this is such a good analog, but it reminds me so much of um, My Darling Clementine and how kind of like this. Uh, oh, yeah. This this hero of legend from a romanticized time period became essentially like a media legend and became like a more modern legend through the idea of like his story being repeated and told and adapted into modern yeah. um, storytelling and pop culture in a way it's that totally the Wyatt Earp thing is different from the original, obviously. But you know what they say when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, mm -hmm. uh, and it it. The, the treatment of the Western era in American media is incredibly similar to uh, any of the many samurai periods of the Jap the Jap Japanese history that is portrayed in Japanese media. Like the the way that is treated, the way that like cultures create their own mythology about this their romanticized pasts is very similar between the two. Um, between the two genres. And I think when you look at it like that, it kind of reveals another aspect of what the Western genre really is, which is more than just the setting specific to the American West, 
But any time, any time period in any culture that could be romanticized from their past involves kind of like this idea of a nobler time or a time where people stuck to ideals or a time where, uh, you know, these noble warriors became the best that there ever was. And these heroes of legend rose. That's kind of like the same idea that you're seeing here. It's the same thing that you see with like chivalric tales in Europe, you know, and it kind of reveals that like the Western isn't really unique to America outside of the aesthetics. Like the idea of the Western is more, is, is actually like a collection of genres that are kind of like a fantasization and romanticization of um, a not current era. I don't know yeah. if that's a too broad or too heady, but that's kind of what I got after watching all the movies this week. Yeah, for sure. There's always once an era has passed, there's always, you know, a warping of it when looking backwards at it. Um, but there's also in the retelling, there's always this ebb and flow of romanticization and then uh, critical, you know, relooking at, which is what we're going to start to see more of. Um, as we look at some of these other samurai films that kind of deconstruct the idea of the noble, heroic, chivalric uh, samurai. Um, Just like we saw we in see The that. Searchers and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yeah, we see that with Westerns. We see that with everything. And then, you know, you even take that to the uh, revisionist histories. So you, you take that all the way to Tarantino, who is the modern day equivalent of, of amalgaming all of his influences. He just usually wears them on his sleeve a little bit uh, more blatantly. Yeah, 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 yeah. The modern day uh, style of just how many things can I possibly reference <laughs> yeah. in, one, in one piece of media. Lovingly uh, reference. Lovingly reference, yeah. Pastiche, not parody. Uh, but anyway, let us move on to Sanjuro from 1962. All right, Jason, take it away with this 30-year-old camellia tree. Sanjuro from 1962. Nine young samurai are caught up in political intrigue when they try to expose the corruption at the regional court. In the sights of the conspirator, Kikui, the honorable young fools are only saved by a world-weary ronin with no name. This wanderer, who goes by Sanjuro, or 30-year-old camellia tree, when asked, notably staring at such a tree when asked for his name, takes this meager resistance movement under his guidance. He aims to save the kidnapped Chamberlain, keep the young samurai from getting themselves needlessly murdered, and do it all while shedding as little blood as possible. Sanjuro's back, Alex. Uh, I, I almost forgot that Sanjuro is uh, Mifune's character in both Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Um, it's just Yojimbo means bodyguard. That's not actually the name of the character. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, San- Sanjuro is not the name of the character either. <laughs> I know, but, and that's actually, that's actually a good point because... Um, as we talked about with Yojimbo, Sanjuro means 30-year-old, and then uh, he just adds whatever he's looking at to it. So in Yojimbo, it was 30-year-old mulberry field, and in this film, it's 30-year-old camella tree. Um, but really, what that is, is it makes him the ronin with no name, uh, which becomes its own trope, and which becomes super relevant to our conversation because it gives us the man with no name trope in westerns which is going to become a uh clint eastwood sergio leone uh thing and so that's super relevant because that idea of the sanjuro the just throwing out a fake name this is just a ronin who is there to essentially solve a problem like uh kurosawa talks about yojimbo as i came up with sanjuro 
as a an imaginary substitute for me? Like, how would I eliminate gangsters? If there was someone who could just get rid of gangsters, who would that be? And that becomes Sanjuro through the film Yojimbo. Um, and now here, Sanjuro, this film apparently was originally going to be a straight adaptation of the short story um, uh, by uh, uh, Shiguro Yamamoto. Yamamoto. And, uh, but once Yojimbo became so popular, then, uh, Kurosawa kind of rewrote it a little bit and, uh, and added in the Sanjuro character. So originally I think that the, the character in the hero in this film was supposed to be not a super great fighter, but he was really clever. And so he would win fights using his brains rather than his, uh, sword abilities. But, after Yojimbo became so popular, the hero, he says, kind of became more and more athletic and talented and skillful and stuff like that. But then yeah. it becomes part of the themes of this film because this yeah. film is all about what do you do when you have a lot of skill? And it's again, it's about reining it in. It's about when to use it and not just flaunting it. Yeah, there's a whole metaphor throughout the um, the uh, uh, the film about Sanjuro being a blade, an unsheathed blade that can never be sheathed again. He yeah. is too deadly and he is dangerous to be around. So, yeah, that is definitely a thing here. I do and like, though, that like every time like in a cartoon or something, you see a character try to come up with a fake name. It's become like they immediately look or the gag is that they <laughs> immediately look around and see like three random objects and slam them together to make a random name. Yep. And I love that you see that in this movie, too. I don't know if it's like the origin of that, but it is really funny that those two parallels exist. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and kind of going into that, the the metaphor of the unsheathed sword, there's also this element, too, of, you know, Sanjuro comes in and kind of gets tug on the heartstring of these uh, this band of samurai who are about to get, you know, totally wiped out by the the clan that's taken over their clan i don't totally understand the politics of this film um but, but uh essentially he he becomes part of this group but he's so much better and smarter than all of them that he becomes really puffed up with himself and then it's funny that the the women character that they save this old lady ends up like teaching him a lesson that totally throws him for a loop for the whole rest of the film like he's totally She's like, you kill too much, too many people. That's a bad habit. You should work on that. He's like, oh I gosh, love that. I think you're right. You kill too many people. That's a bad habit. Yeah, but it totally he, it sinks in with him. And he's like, oh, it's my true, gosh, yeah. you're totally right. But then he has to keep killing people. But he just feels worse and worse and worse about it until we yeah. get to the very end, which, of course, we'll talk about in a little bit. Well, of course, the irony is that he got involved because he was saving these dudes Right. Um, these young trying samurai. To save 10 guys and, and in the process, he killed like, you know, well over 50 dudes. Yeah. Like a lot. He killed a lot of dudes. So many dudes. That one friggin' Blitzkrieg scene is so nuts. I oh, wanna, yeah. It's I want to know the body count of that one scene. Yeah. I mean, certainly like Mifune, there's a reason that Mifune is such a legendary on screen samurai. Like, the oh, way yeah. He, the, just his presence and the way he fights. Um, I love his little samurai run when he's got his arms down. <laughs> There's this distinctive way that he'll run when he's like in fight mode. Um, but oh, it's just, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's I think that's like a habit to keep the blade out of the way. That would make a lot of sense. Um, 
Yeah, because I think just, if you're reading, if you're running with an unsheathed blade, you don't want to actually be pumping your arms. Yeah. So I think you're supposed to kind of keep them by your side so that you're not like swinging this piece of metal up by your face. I think that's actually the origin too of like the Naruto run, except that it's just become so like exaggerated, right? Because you're not holding anything, it just looks really silly. Yeah. Because, okay, think about it. If you're a ninja holding a fistful of very sharp, things that you're going to throw at somebody. Yeah. You don't want to be, you don't want to be pumping though your fists up by your face or your torso. <laughs> so it makes actually a lot of sense to keep those down by your side. It's just that like, it's become so exaggerated through like uh, modern animation that you know, it's kind of become cartoonish. Whereas the version you see here is probably a little closer to something that might be realistically practical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like the way that we see uh, Mifune's presence on screen. Um, obviously, a lot of that is because Kurosawa knows how to handle it. Like Kurosawa mm -hmm. knows how to handle a lone warrior, and it's very. We talked about last week how he was a big fan of Ford, and how it's very clear that a lot of this is influenced by westerns, um, although they're not one to ones. But he he handles Mifune so well. He, oh yeah, like we always talk about how, or sometimes you hear people talk about how uh, in those big group fights, how it's silly that everybody doesn't just charge the hero at once, but it kind of makes sense why you wouldn't do it here because Mifune is so terrifying yeah. that like, I wouldn't want to charge him, would you? You'd wait for your friend Bob to charge him <laughs> and then go in for your chance and then you'd get killed too. And yeah. that's exactly what you see happen here. And then the other thing is to see kind of that radical snap between these moments of like almost serenity where you're looking at the trees, you're looking at the blossoms, where Sanjuro's laying around very languidly, very relaxed, moving very slow, talking very slow. Mm -hmm. And then, but then something snaps. Just exuding confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But when, when he needs to go into action, when he needs to do his little samurai run or kill somebody, he moves so fast and yeah. so deliberately that you understand why everybody's so scared of him. Like you get it in those moments. Um, and just that, that balancing of the pacing between uh, languid confidence and deadly quickness is perfectly balanced in this film, just like it was in Yojimbo. And you, you kind of see it on display here in a new story, a new setting. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting too, because I feel like this film varies from Yojimbo in tone a bit because it's a little more... Um, not necessarily more confined, but I feel like the structure is more of, like I was alluding to, it's more of a detective story almost. It's a little slower. The action comes in bits, but it's a little bit more about discovering information. It's about, you know, they've got one of our guys captured. How are we going to sneak into their fortress and get him out? And how are we going to, uh, you know, he's playing the double agent going in and playing both sides. So it's, it's really interesting. And I was actually watching the... Uh, the commentary for Yojimbo uh, and there's the scene where Yojimbo gets captured and uh, 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 just totally tortured is almost directly pulled apparently from an old American film, but not a Western film. It's actually a noir film based on a Deshiel Hammett novel, uh, mm. which is the guy who wrote the Maltese Falcon. You know, yeah. it's a it's a detective film. And so obviously Kurosawa has influence from a lot of different American films, not just John Ford, not just Westerns, but you see some of those other things like the noir, the detectives, the, you know, 
going forwards, this almost feels more like a James Bond kind of a story than necessarily a uh, a Clint Eastwood kind of a story. I could see elements of that for sure. Um, although certainly better than the James Bond that was actually set in Japan. That one was not the best. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, for sure. It is definitely kind of, I think, a very virtuous cycle that you see when you look throughout like film past as you see um, the American industry bloom and influence the Japanese industry and then the Japanese industry blooms and influences the American industry and vice versa. Um, it's really cool to see that interplay of influences across the Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. It is, it is very, very good. Oh, I forgot to mention one of the biggest uh, um, American legacies from Musashi Miyamoto, which is in the second film when there's a thug Musashi's hanging out in a tavern or something and he's upstairs and there's a bunch of thugs gambling downstairs and he tells uh, Musashi tells his page essentially to go tell them to be quiet and then the big thug comes up and he's gonna you know punch Musashi or whatever but Musashi's there eating his noodles and picking flies with his chopsticks and just like getting rid of them picking the chopstick picking the flies with his chopsticks and that alone terrifies the thugs enough to to leave him alone and the thug actually kind of becomes his apprentice after that but totally Mr. Miyagi um in the future so again this cycle it's just it's all there it keeps turning yeah for sure um yeah i mean it's it, and on top of all of that you see a lot of other things that could definitely be attributed to like um kind of like the more of the adaptations of the aesthetic of the Western where it's kind of like culture specific kind of being adapted or just Mm -hmm. naturally existing really within the Japanese Chambara Uh, stuff like instead of having a series of outlaws or uh, something of that, you have a scruffy Ronins and um, a noble samurais who've been like discarded from their home or something like that. Um, Instead of cowboy hats, you have the top knots, which are really funny. Um, <laughs> mostly because it's uh, the style kind of originated uh, be- from like balding middle aged men. It's almost like a comb over. Like, yeah, I, one of the. It's so funny looking. And, and so then you see like younger men like shaving their their pates. Yeah. To match the style of the older men who've already lost their hair. Which it's is almost like the Friar Tuck thing where you know, yeah. the Friar with the bald circle. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that's sprung up in so many places. It's so interesting. And it's such it's so anathema to like a modern like. A modern. Well, now it's just a like, man bun. You wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to lose all that hair in the middle of the head. I mean, the top knot itself looks cool. Don't get me wrong. It, yeah. it is basically a, a man bun, right? Uh, but more like samurai. But it's, I think it's the pate shaving that I find really like amusing. And I think it's really interesting. I was trying to figure out what the uh, because the samurai, like the Ronin, have the top knot too, but they don't have the shaved head. They still have like uh, Sanjuro has all his hair, and then he still has the top knot coming over top. You just can't tell as much because you know it's just on his hair. Um, but I so I think that the samurai who are employed do the shaved head thing because it's more I guess it's like wearing your tie <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because I've noticed I've noticed something else that's very similar to that and I think it's an interesting mix of interplay of um 
some of it's so some of that stuff is there to create the feeling of uh being in this of this Jedi Geki, of like being in a different period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. But also some of the decisions being made are anachronistic for the sake of us being sympathetic to a character or identifying with him or him being appealing to a modern audience. So I think one of the reasons that Sanjuro himself saw his hair, even though he has a top knot on top of it, um, is because he's still the protagonist. He looks cooler. So he looks cooler like that to a modern audience than if you actually shaved his head. One of the other things I've noticed, and I think this happens in both Sanjuro and in um, uh, Musashi, you see it with um, Matahachi's mother versus Otsu, is that older women whose appearance on screen isn't going to be as much, isn't there necessarily for the visual appeal of the modern audience being broadcast to at the time, have the blackened teeth, um, which is another period thing, but they don't do that to the younger women who would have been, who you know, not having blackened teeth would have been more appealing to a modern audience. Well, yeah, uh, I think that's also, I, I always find that interesting because there's, there's a cultural, it's almost like a character study thing to me because the origin of the black teeth was that the, the rich people in, of the day could afford sweets, but they didn't have good dentistry. And so rich people would eat sweets and then their teeth would fall out. Just like um, the British. <laughs> and so the people who, uh, the the peasants or the poorer people, they had to shockingly eat healthy food and they would still have their teeth, but they would color their teeth black um, to look more affluent. Um, they, and so whenever I see that, I think of a character who's trying to look more affluent than they actually are. And usually that's... Uh, the the older women who are trying to look like they're at a certain status that they're not that the younger women don't necessarily need to try and achieve that would make a lot of sense for a lot of the characters i think it makes slightly less sense for the two women who are saved in sanjuro yeah um because maybe old, she just literally was supposed maybe, to have her teeth rotted maybe her teeth were already rotted i think there's there is definitely like this thing in history too where stuff something starts for like a practical reason and then it becomes like yeah it just becomes the fashion like ties like ties or like how um uh how like being like super pale in in europe became popular after tuberculosis became such a pandemic yeah or that one weird period of medieval history where a raised hairline on a woman was considered attractive. Uh, I don't even remember how that one started, but I know they they that women at court would essentially recede their own hairlines by applying cat urine to their forehead. <laughs> so, you know what? Oh, it's a, a history is full of weird fashion choices, and it's interesting. But it's interesting to see those in uh, contra- it, how those are employed both to evoke the idea of periodicity or um, like how, how accurate it would be to the period to create that, that setting on screen and what's, ad- what's not adapted for the appeal of the modern audience. Yeah. Uh, but that is and, to say like, Oh, continue. Oh, I was going to kind of go off on a different track. So keep going. Oh, I was just going to say, that's all to say top knots were since the basic point at the beginning of this was that top knots are the equivalent of cowboy hats. Yes. <laughs> that's all I was getting to. <laughs> That you know, you have katanas instead of six shooters, and I think it's more prevalent in this film specifically, but especially because it's shot in like this stunning black and white by Kurosawa. But you know, all of the good guys wear 
um, light kimonos and all of the bad guys wear dark kimonos, white hats versus black hats, which is mm-hmm. classic old timey silent film style creation of bad versus good on screen. Yeah. And the other thing about um, creating our on screen sympathies is that this film, again, in kind of contrast to Yojimbo and Yojimbo Sanjuro rolls in and he's he's getting these two gangs to fight against each other. Right. And so the idea, I think in the film, you kind of get the sense that one is a little more evil than the other one. But essentially, the idea from Kurosawa is that these are both equally bad gangs and the goal is to just wipe them out. And so you don't really care how many on either side end up getting killed. Um, except for some of the innocent bystanders that get thrown in the mix as well. But here we have Sanjuro standing up for an actual cause. And he's with these, uh, I don't remember how many there were. I think it started off as 10, um, nine or 10. And, uh, so we have our sympathies with these guys. Like these are the guys that we're, uh, rooting for. And so there's a little bit more of that emotional weight to this one rather than just kind of, a body count romp. Um, so that's, and that, that kind of goes into some of those themes of Westerns, uh, when you're looking at, you know, it's, it's, it's the taking a stand, the moral stand. It's like high noon. It's like, uh, 310 to Yuma. Those kinds of Westerns are the, the sort of, uh, psychographic genre that you could put them in, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got to talk about the ending before we get out of this. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> the, 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 so this is spoilers right now, because, you know, if you if you plan on watching this movie, go watch it before you listen to the next five minutes or so, because the last fight in this film is probably my favorite sword fight ever filmed. And it's 35 frames long. I counted it's it really fast. I watched it like 10 times and I counted the frames. There's 35 frames of movement. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's Mifune versus um, Nakadai again, and it mm-hmm. is well. One of the, I think one of the things that makes it so great is that it's such a short shot payoff after like nearly a full film's worth of tension building. Yeah, and then the real catharsis isn't even the fact that he wins the fight; it's what he screams at the young samurai afterwards. Yeah, because now he's trying to live that. He's trying to be the sheathed sword, and he's being drawn out, uh, essentially, by Nakadai's character, by Maruto. And it's so great because this is literally, it's literally the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, except with no music, which makes it even better. Um, because instead of having the, uh, the classic Good, The Bad, and The Ugly face-off music, you just, just have wind. wind. You just have wind. You just have them standing there for what seems like an eternity, motionless. And it is so great when that final payoff. I mean, it's literally the fastest draw in the West kind of thing, which you, you know, how do you do that with swords? Because they're close range weapons. Well, you have the guys stand there and look each other in the eye for two minutes and then they draw. They're like in handshake range, too. Yeah. And oh my gosh, again, I went I went frame by frame because I was like, how do they even how is how is a move like that even possible? Like where does the where does the hit come from? But if you watch it, it's it's a, a legit move on both of their parts that's just so fast that it's it's incredible. And I was reading um in the little 
pamphlet in the Blu-ray from Criterion, there's some interviews with some of the crew members and the uh, uh, the script supervisor said that it was like even on set, everyone was just stunned and silent at both the movement and the sheer quantity of blood <laughs> that they were not prepared for. Yeah, uh, you can kind of tell that like Nakadai has got the rigging up in his um in his hakama right before uh-huh. the uh, right before the 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 slash. But dang, it is a lot of blood. You're not prepared. You are not prepared. Uh, and it's so interesting when Kurosawa chooses to use the uh, the spurts of blood because he doesn't do it all the time. No, no, that was the biggest thing of blood in the whole movie. It's right at the end. Yeah. Yeah, in this one, there's really not many. I think there were a few in Yojimbo. Um, actually, I think Yojimbo has the first one that Kurosawa ever did. Uh, but this one has got to be the most memorable. Oh, yeah, for sure. It is. I think the reason it works is because it's so much when you haven't seen as much blood in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, and it's like this one cartoonish spurt. And you and have you to do that, that build up and all of that is just you're you're waiting for something to happen and then it all happens at once. Yeah. And you we have the same reaction as as the audience that the young samurai do is like, whoa, that was awesome, dude. It's like the the kid from Incredibles. That was so totally wicked. And then you have uh, but and then when Sanjiro yells at the um, at the young samurai, he's also kind of yelling at the audience. He's yeah. like, you idiots, you shouldn't want blood. This is awful. What is wrong with you? Don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. He literally says, stay back. I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. Which kind of lines up with the deconstruction that we saw of the Western in uh, previous movies where being the fastest on the draw or, mm-hmm. you know, being the, the strongest hero who can kill the most people normally doesn't lead to that satisfying of a life. Well, um, it's also going to lead us into our next film because really what it's exposing is that this, even just the fascination with samurai is this fascination with violence. You know, there's there's a certain amount of bloodlust that you have to have just to even be interested in a genre like samurai films or like westerns and stuff like that. And I realize I'm indicting myself as we talk through an entire you know, five months of Westerns. Uh, but the whole idea is that (laughs) the whole idea is that there is a, um, you know, like if you don't put a limit, if you don't have a sheath, like you just get more and more blood. Uh, and that's literally the theme of the next film that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Evil, evil soul, evil sword, evil soul, evil sword. Uh, so shall we, Sword of Doom from 1966. Jason, take it away. The Sword of Doom from 1966. Ryunusuke Suke is a master swordsman exiled from his school and hated by his father, most likely because he's an immoral sociopath. He takes up with a group of assassins after an incident at a sanctioned kendo match where Ryunusuke kills his opponent. This opponent was a man whose wife Ryunusuke had slept with the night before in a feeble attempt on the woman's part to spare her husband's honor. An immoral sociopath indeed, for with the power of life and death in his blade, he leaves a path of destruction across Japan. Okay, Alex, are you ready? Before there was Joker. Before <laughs> there was Taxi Driver. Before there was even Lay Samurai. By one year, there was Sword of Doom which I think is all of those in its, uh, you know, embryonic stage 
but also kind of in its ultimate stage at the same time. You know, what's crazy about this movie, Jonathan, is it makes me realize that we live in a society. <laughs> we do indeed. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know we live in a society? Um, oh my gosh, the 1960s Japanese version of Joker Bros. I can't even imagine. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, that's kind of like, like Nakadai, when we talk about Nakadai as a uh, staple of samurai cinema, this is kind of one of the ones that epitomizes him, his just blank psychotic stare, his crazy fighting technique of going limp like a zombie and then striking at the last possible moment. It's just, there's so much wrapped into this film. That's so dark, uh, but it's so impactful and yeah. it's, it's, it's a complete deconstruction of this is the, f like basically the furthest away you can get from Musashi Miyamoto, right? This, if there's an ideal of nobility, of self-betterment in uh, a Miyamoto, this is the opposite of that. This is just pure, blind, bloodlust rage. Well, it's ironic, too, because Miyamoto is at, set at the start of the Tokugawa era. Like, the Battle of Sekigahara is kind of like how Tokugawa started that era. And this is set at the end of that era, right before the Meiji oh, Restoration. And the group that uh, that Nakadai's character joins up with is um, is like this rogue group of samurai, and like the samurai are on their way out, and the emperor is installing like these new this new form of government that pushes the samurai out, and essentially what they're doing is going around and just murdering the new government people. Like that's what they're finding. Like these new ministers, these new people who are now no longer part of the samurai class. Like they're just like like actual like government people like they would be like the local like mayor Execute or whatever order 66 yeah and just going around just murdering them just rampantly not even with like any like structural intent like you see them no all warrants. just kind of like yeah there's no there's no plan here they're they're just like kind of reveling in the end of um of the era and holding on to like the most toxic possible version of Bushido or like of being a samurai that is, mm -hmm. that is possible. Um, and it's not even, I don't even think that Nakadai necessarily sympathizes with them. I don't know how much Nakadai's character feels anything at all. I think he only yeah. feels anything when he fights, um, He's up until the point that he empty. feels, yeah. Up until the point that he feels fear when he sees Mifune fight. I think that's the second time he yeah. really experiences an emotion in the film. And I yeah. think that's what makes that moment so impactful. Yeah, because and, and I think that's interesting, too, because in this film, I think Mufune is almost playing a meta character of himself. He's almost playing the Miyamoto. He's almost playing like, you know, Mufune usually plays the the ultimate fighter and, you know, whether that's a Ronin who's kind of masterless and playing by his own rules, whether that's Musashi who's trying to uphold um, the the ideals of the samurai way of life. Um, here, I think Mufune is standing in for that ideal because he's so identified with it just in the cultural uh, realm. He fills that role really well here. Um, and I think that that is what makes him an imposing figure to Nakadai's character. Um, and, but he's not the, the actual rival and the ways that, that 
you know, those categories may or may not actually matter given the film's ending. Uh, we could talk about in a second, but you have the, uh, the other guy who, gosh, how is he related? He's like the, the son of one of the guys that he kills and he he actually has this vengeance with him. He's the brother of the guy who he kills in the duel at the start of the movie. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but he's the apprentice of, uh, Mufune's character. So he's the apprentice of kind of the ultimate, uh, noble samurai. And so he's really the rival, uh, that we don't get to see them face off. And we'll talk about that later, but, um, you know, that, that is the, the good versus evil going on in this film. It's just that this film happens to kind of take us through the, the dark side of that. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting too. I like that we still have Mifune in this film because this is, well, this is still an era of filmmaking where like um, you still have this big star talent that is less chameleonic. Like you see people today with where they try to like submerge themselves in the roles and it's kind of like just, I this, still see you through Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Essentially that, you know, um, where you still see like the actor underneath and that, that works though, because the actor has such charisma and that was a big right. role. That was such a big thing in like classic Hollywood and that big star machine and stuff. Uh, but here it, I like it so much because Mifune is like fire on screen. He's like this un, uh, just like this outpouring of energy. That's how he fights. That's how he talks. Um, even when he is like languid or slow as Sinjuro, it's more of like smoldering embers than it is mm-hmm. like a doused campfire or anything like that. You're just waiting for him to kick up again on screen. Whereas like Nakadai is ice. He is he there's, is cold there's almost like still. a yeah, like if Mifune is is this very strong, imposing character, like an elephant, Nakadai is like a snake. He's like you might not see him until it's too late. Yeah, I mean that's all very much like how his character is themed in um yeah in Yojimbo. Uh, oh yeah, that's like uh, that's exactly how it is. To like the way he he pulls his um gun uh, his kimono. gun out of his his um hakama is like like a snake like emerging from his um emerging from his clothes. It's it's really scary, but they're such opposites on screen that it works really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nakadai has a range too. You know, he in another film by uh, by Okamoto, uh, who did this film, he did another film called Kill that also stars uh, Nakadai. But in Kill, it's almost like a parody of a Western um, in a way that I think (laughs) relates really well. But it's like Nakadai's character is the Ronin who's totally disillusioned with samurais. He doesn't want to be a samurai. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It's actually based on another short story by the same guy who wrote the short story that Sanjuro is based on. So it's also about a group of samurai who are being uh, turned on by their clan and he's sticking up for them and trying to protect them. But it's it's another deconstruction of the the mythology of samurai in saying, you know, the samurai had these codes of loyalty and stuff like that, but they weren't even honored by their own, their own Lords, you know, they would be turned on. Uh, and so there's, there's this deconstruction of this, this golden era of having these great codes of honor and chivalry and stuff like that, because it never actually turned out that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in this film, like Nakadai is a near, I just can't remember his actual character's name. Ryunosuke, that's it. Um, 
Ryunosuke uh, is like this near undefeatable swordsman. And in that sense, mm-hmm. like he's in that way, one way he's approaching the ideal of like a Musashi, right? But Musashi's oh, yeah. not a real person anymore. He's a legend. And so you kind of forget that like maybe what it's like to be such a killing machine is that you're a sociopathic murderer who can't yeah. feel anything and treats everybody like dirt. Um, Again, like blood begets blood is basically <laughs> what it yeah, comes down to. Yeah, yeah. It's a more, it's maybe a more realistic uh, portrayal of what a life built entirely around the ability to kill somebody is like. The ability to kill someone like so, so, so fearlessly skillfully, and yeah. flawlessly. Yeah. And so there's there's also a really strong element, and I was reading a little bit about the the original story too, but there's definitely a karmic element to this too. It's, you know, he keeps doing bad things and bad things come back on him. So the, the way that the film starts, I think is fascinating because it's, you know, there's almost girls in the whole film. Yeah. But there's almost a way to justify like the way he fights throughout most of the film, because either, you know, he set up a duel and sure he fought unfairly, but there was a reason that he was fighting. The guy was a fighter or whatever. There's no explanation for why he kills the old man at the beginning. It's there just is. like, there is, is there? Yeah. They got the old, essentially it, it, he walks up to an old man and the old man is praying for death. Um, right. That, that's what the old man's praying for. And so Nakadai walks up and I think we're supposed to take his character as a sociopath, almost like Sherlock. So he, he, in the BBC adaptation, so he walks up, he hears somebody praying for death and, uh, Ryanosuke is like, well, I guess I am death and kills him and then moves on. I wasn't, okay. I wasn't sure if there was an indication that he heard the old man's prayer or if that was just coincidence. I thought that it might've been a karmic element for the old man, but I didn't know if it was directly correlated. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's kind of like the implication is that he he kills an old man begging for death. Now he doesn't talk to the old man beforehand because he's a sociopath. Well, he does uh, say something like get up and turn west or something and then the old man doesn't do it or he's confused about why this guy is telling him to walk west <laughs> and uh then he just kills him. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I mean that that one act like sets so much in motion. It sets the um the uh the the young woman who later becomes the courtesan who's at the in the final scene in the freak out in the brothel in Kyoto um she's there who kind of helps trigger his psychotic breakdown um yeah. there he also meets the thief who becomes like kind of like the semi protector of this young woman who he finds further up the trail um which i i didn't realize the first time i saw this film i only realized it the second time that those are the same character the second character he takes a swipe at on the trail is the guy mm-hmm. who kind of becomes like the um Oh yeah, he cuts his his uh his, his head his hat, yeah. And yeah. he um he takes her and sets uh, puts her up with the girl in the same town that Mifune has the school in. Uh but then the the old woman sells her to the courtesans so yeah, then the yeah, thief yeah. freaks out on him. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff weaving together here. And mm-hmm. to that extent like you can see how this can come from like the old newspaper style serial of like, yeah, um, where you could just like paper era again, the way that you, you mentioned, um, uh, kind of Monte Cristo, which just has an insane number of plot lines 
Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of along those lines where you have a lot of plots that all kind of converge at a single point. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I guess to that end, um, let's kind of get into the ending and we can put down a spoiler warning here, but it, I don't think it really affects the viewing of the film because it kind of almost enhances it, actually. <laughs> um, but what did you think about the way that it ends? Because this is a very interestingly structured film i thought the ending was kind of soft i thought it was a good it would think i think it was good up until a point um i think it was okay uh, i'm interested because i think i disagree with you (laughs) yeah i think it was i think it was interesting in the sense that uh, it seems like a fitting end for this guy who doesn't seem to be able to feel anything and leaves so many people completely terrified to finally succumb to that terror in and of his in and of himself and be completely mm-hmm. haunted by everything. I thought that was very justified. I thought the that if that had ended with him uh, you know being killed by everybody in the in the brothel working together somehow or if he had like run out a window and impaled himself on his own sword or something mm-hmm. something of that nature like he had the karmic justice had been clearly served would have been a little more satisfying. I think the one really soft thing is the ending on the freeze frame. I think that that that's kind of like almost like, uh, well, okay. So I think the reason they did that was actually that they meant to make a second movie. They just never did because the story is actually longer than this. Um, I was going to mention that, uh, but because they did not it feels very soft. It's the, it's the classic um, Hollywood thing where they've set up for a sequel that never comes. So the the end is a little weaker than it could have been. Yeah, and but it's interesting, though, because I felt that this was one of those films, um, and I feel like we've talked about films like this before. I just can't call a specific instance. But that freeze frame, like, in a split second, changed my entire perspective on the film. Because ultimately, to my mind, if we take it as as a single unit, right? Like, don't think of it as they were setting up for a sequel, they were going to do more. I mean, the uh, the story had, I think it went on for three decades and had over 300 entries. Um, like, it just kept going. It was like Sherlock Holmes. He couldn't kill the character off to save his life. Um, but there's also an element to the way that this film ends in light of its themes where it it basically just says, you know, it's about nonstop violence, right? It's about this violence that just is unstoppable. It's it's unstoppable and it's just nonstop. It just keeps going. Like there is no real end to it. Um, it doesn't really present a solution. It's just showing this, this havoc that's wreaked by this fascination, this kind of just morbid compulsion to violence. Um, and it's it's even a way that the none of those storylines that we were just talking about are wrapped up. We don't get to see a culmination of the brother and the daughter um, from the two different storylines come together that we're waiting for. We don't get to see a final duel with uh, Ryonosuke and the brother. We don't get to see any duel with Mifune. I don't think he fights at all. He's just, you know, just watching his students fight. Mifune um, fights. Does he fight? Yeah, they tried to assassinate him and he murders everybody. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, but not like in a in a final duel kind of a thing. It just literally ends with 
Ryunosuke kind of going mad and just rampaging and just it doesn't stop and it still doesn't stop even after the film is over. I just realized that the um that the original story was never finished. Yeah, that too. I mean, it's it's kind of fitting to <laughs> to go along with the whole thing. You know, it's interesting. The original story there uh there was an adaptation of it in the 30s by uh, or one of the directors of, of it was uh, Hiroshi Inagaki, who was the director of our first film, the, the Miyamoto trilogy. So this mm-hmm. story has, you know, long legs, so to speak. Like, even before the story had finished, well, had <laughs> released its last episode, they were already starting to make stage plays and make films. It's like the original Game of Thrones. I mean, in its darker aspects as well. Uh, maybe not not enough incest to really be Game of Thrones level, though. Not quite. You know what I was thinking, though? It's almost like if we think of samurai films and Chambara films as like the superhero films of this time in Japan. This is oh, kind very of like so. this is kind of like the boys, right? Yeah. It's the take the samurai. And what if he uses all of that skill, all of that power, but none of the ethical codes of conduct and just turns them completely on their heads. Yeah. 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 I think I had that realization too, was that like, in in a way, even though they don't really have full, truly like supernatural powers, uh, both Westerns and, uh, and, and Samurai Chambara films kind of play with the idea of like, what if somebody did have powers that were so good or so skillful that nobody could really hurt them? Well, if Hawkeye like, is a superhero, then Clint Eastwood can be a superhero. He just shoots really good. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Um, oh, gosh. Superheroes. But yeah, I guess, yeah, this kind of genre filmmaking is kind of already like playing with that idea of like, what if somebody was so strong that they could win every fight? Like, yeah. what if, what if that, you know, and then that is kind of is a very easy jump to get to, uh, to superheroes from there. Yeah, um, Absolutely. For sure. So that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, on that note, do you want to slide into overall notes? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And I guess to that extent, like we can definitely say that, you know, there is very clearly a lot going on that's very similar between Westerns and Chambaras. In a way, they're kind of like each country's own uh, like addition of romanticizing their past um, Mm -hmm. or a portion of their past to have stuff that is very similar, right? You see like these same um these same things pop up in both romantic lone warriors with codes of honor who participate in epic fights and become legendary characters. Um you also see something that I notice a lot at least in both westerns and in samurai films is that the most interesting of them is normally set at the very edge of society and like something assembly uh close to a frontier. There's not a lot of Chambara yeah. films that take place in big cities um, close to government. It's normally in this in a realm in which somebody with a massive amount of physical prowess can have power for the lack of any sort of centralized government power in that area. Um, yeah. So kind of dealing with that ideal as well. But, you know, each each kind of like is still its own thing. Right. It's not to say they're the same genres. They're like just each country's edition of it, of Mm -hmm. a similar idea 
incarnated into its own genre. And each has its own aesthetic with either swords or armor or language or um, guns and hats and uh, territories and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's very clear that they both influenced each other as well. I think it's very hard to look at Kurosawa's Yojimbo and Sanjuro films and say that those weren't inspired in large part by John Ford films. And it's just as hard to say that, you know, well, actually it's impossible to say because Sergio Leone just <laughs> straight up remade them. Um, but Sergio Leone just straight up remade <laughs> um, Kurosawa films. Yeah. Just with Clint Eastwood in a Western made in Italy. So the virtuous cycle of the Western continues. Oh, yeah. Continually being remade in different cultures and adding to it like a giant a Katamari ball, just rolling along, picking everything up. Yeah, or uh, a tumbleweed as we get back <laughs> a into... A tumbleweed, <laughs> yes, exactly. As we... Because uh, we are going to bring it back to uh, to the traditional Western. Um, you know, again, yeah, these these are distinct genres, but there was, there's enough of those parallels. There's enough direct influences to build that thread, and there's enough of those symbolic parallels and threads to see um this kind of uh feudal japan and this kind of wild wild west uh crossover uh well maybe just the wild west i I think the wild wild west purely comes from like (laughs) bad comic books and yeah um will smith's rapping okay granted but there's enough crossover to be able to uh to have this conversation and it's 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 really cool to see how those, you know, ultimately, again, when we're talking about Westerns as both highly entertaining, um, a highly entertaining genre, but also one that oftentimes tries to get to, you know, something about people. And often it's dealing with, you know, the kind of darker, murkier sides of people and what they want and what they're willing to do to get what they want. Um, and so it's really cool to see those parallels in themes across cultural lines and across historical lines, uh, and stuff and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, for sure. Right. And you know, we, we're, I don't think we're going to get to it, but you see versions of this in other, uh, in other countries as well. Uh, the one that immediately springs to mind is, um, uh, Korean cinema, although, I will say Korean cinema is unique in that sense and that it's not specifically uh, uh it's it's even more unique right because it's very consciously ripping it like the one I'm thinking yeah. about is the good the bad and the weird oh yeah of course <laughs> we I think we covered that one on the podcast before yeah. um but yeah, obviously like a rip of the good the bad and the ugly but set in Korea um which I don't know if it has a desert, but according to that movie, it has a desert. According, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and and even uh, Cholet, right, is a straight up western. Is very John Ford inspired, um, and I think there's you know that spawned an entire subgenre of Indian films that is this strange cultural mix of uh, Indian cinema and Western uh, ideals and stuff. And I was even thinking recently, like. The the uncle character in Sholei, who has no arms, looks a lot like Toshiro Mifune's character in Yojimbo, who keeps his arms inside of his 
kimono during almost the entire film. Uh, so there's a lot of these crossovers. Yeah, not just between uh, the West and Japan and back and forth, uh, but all over the world, every, everywhere movies are made. That is a very interesting connection that I was not expecting to be made. <laughs> um, although I will say one of the things that I did think of that was an interesting connection that I did not expect to be made either was um, the connection between uh, the Goimon bath or the little stone ba- so circular cylindrical stone bath that um, uh, Mifune's character takes in uh, uh, Musashi Miyamoto Samurai 1 and the barrel bath that you see in a lot of Westerns uh, where somebody takes a bath just in a barrel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why, but those two connected for me. Um, but I think it's just that, again, like that idea of living kind of like in this frontier area away from the luxuries of the big city. Um, yeah. And everyone's I mean, kind it's, of just on their own. Yeah. It's, it's a survival. It's a survival of the fittest kind of a world. And, uh, the genre is a very survival of the fittest kind of a genre. Yeah. When you're on the, you're on the frontier of a society, it's a good place to examine what's important to that society and yeah. what cultural things, uh, prevail in the face of, uh, this life where you kind of are focused on subsistence and surviving day to day. And not uh, just a physical frontier, but it's even oftentimes a historical frontier. You know, we talked about uh, with the American Westerns, you see the railroad coming and it changes the times like it changes what day to day living is. And you see here the different political upheavals changing the times. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of like you can tell that you're on the edge of like one era is ending and another era is starting. Uh, and so mm-hmm. in that case, it's it's a chronological frontier. It's a physical frontier. It's a uh, you know, it's kind of a. Uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Philosophical. It's a, it's a moral frontier. Yeah. Philosophical frontier. Yeah. 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 We have movies. We have mentioned movies this week where we are on the dawn of the age of uh, samurai ascendancy and we mentioned a film where it was at the opposite end of that at the fall of samurai um, being important in, in culture so yes it is very it's again fascinating one these movies are just good in and of themselves but two it's interesting oh, yeah, that they, these genres have sprung up that are so self-analytical um, I think in very unintentional and sometimes very intentional uh, ways depending on who's making the movie um, about one's own culture and history and past and the legends we and stories we tell about ourselves, um, which at the end of the day and is others. a huge part of what Westerns and Chambara really are. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, definitely. All right, Jonathan, what are we talking about next time on the podcast? Yes, next time we're heading back west, uh, but we're going to stop somewhere in between... Europe and America. We're talking about spaghetti westerns. Specifically, we're talking about Sergio Leone, and uh, we've alluded to him several times during this episode, uh, and we've already covered several of his films, especially in relation to westerns and also in relation to samurai films, because we've already compared Yojimbo to uh, A Fistful of Dollars. And so, since we cannot leave the series without talking about some man with no name. We're going to hit the last of the men with the no name trilogy that we have just spread out and 
dis- dismembered across our podcast. We're going to talk about it for a few dollars more from 1965. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968. And a uh, very confusing film, Duck You Sucker from 1971, also sometimes called A Fistful of Dynamite. Yeah. Uh, I have, can't remember should, which one's official. I don't think it even matters at this point. Yeah, it, it, to understand the title, just picture somebody hurling dynamite over your head. Uh, duck, you sucker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and then and imagine it. a studio trying to get a little bit more money. It's literally the the story of the the title of that film is exactly what uh, people talk about when influencers will post a video and change the title every hour for the first five hours to see which one gets the most hits. Uh, that's what happened to that movie. (laughs) Yeah. I hate that stuff. It's so annoying. Yeah. The, the movie is really fun though. Um, I do, I I do recommend it. Obviously we're going to watch it for the show, but yeah, check them out. We've covered a lot of Sergio Leone just based on pure happenstance on the uh, show so far. So at this point, we're just going to do some more. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. And just to point out, Once Upon a Time in the West and Duck You Sucker are both part of an unofficial, like, Once Upon a Time trilogy, uh, which is includes Once Upon a Time in the West, Duck You Sucker, and Once Upon a Time in America. So if you're interested, uh, you can also watch Once Upon a Time in America to get the full effect. Yeah, there you go. Check them out. <laughs> I would argue that Once Upon a Time in America is a Western, but it's not quite the kind of Western we're talking about today. It more fits into um, the idea of the final episode in the Western series we have planned. Yeah. Um, so we might mention it for that one, for sure. Um, there you go. But yeah, that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 459 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at The Filmlings. Summaries for this episode were recorded by me, Blue Jay. You can find me on Twitter at TheBlueJay1994. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Oh, I thought you said chameleon tree. I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you you didn't see the chameleon in here? (laughs) No, I didn't. He was doing a good job, apparently. It was the follow-up to uh, Rango, but it's... uh, (laughs) It's... um, It's uh, Rango-sama. It's like the Japanese version of Rango. He's a samurai. Rangjuro. Oh my gosh, I would totally watch that. Um, Rangimbo. (laughs) Rangimbo.